Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And I'm really looking forward to listening to today's talk with you. If you remember a while back, I mentioned the fact that there was an author who had contacted me about doing an interview about his new book. But at about that time that I received the request, well, that's when my old computer crashed. And since I'm not very good about filing things, I had misplaced his request, his book, and on top of that, my old email program had crashed as well. So when I saw that the Symposia team had scheduled the interview that we are about to listen to, well, it all came back to me. And now I've also found my copy of Stephen's book. It was in the box where I put everything that was on my desk while I was uh, dealing with setting up a new computer. Actually, uh, <laughs> I hadn't looked in that box in over a month, and I just now found all kinds of things in it that have obviously slipped through the cracks. In any event, Stephen's new book was there, and this afternoon it will be providing my reading pleasure about, well, the most important ally in my own medicine kit. So, Stephen, I apologize for not getting back to you, but I'm very pleased that the Symposia team made contact with you for today's podcast. So, let's join Lex now. I'm Lex Pelger of Symposia, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. We'll be talking with Stephen Gray, who is the editor of Cannabis and Spirituality, an explorer's guide to an ancient plant spirit ally. It's a really excellent collection of essays around the spiritual uses of cannabis that often get forgotten today amidst all the talk of the medical value and the industrial value of the old cannabis plant. Stephen Gray pulled together a bunch of great essays, including Kat Harrison herself, who wrote Who Is She?, Dr. Julie Holland wrote the foreword, and then her husband Jeremy continued that excellent essay he wrote called Thoughts on Pot in here with Thoughts on Pot 2. One of the strong points of the book is the number of different directions that these different essays go. They talk about mixing sacraments. They talk about harm reduction around pot use. And they have very specific, helpful advice for making your cannabis use more spiritual. Here to tell us more is the editor... Stephen Gray. I first wanted to hear about how you got started on this journey and pulling together a book like this. Oh, let's see, where to start? I think it was in my 15th previous life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, I could go back to, uh, you know, I'll confess right off the top that uh, I'm from that baby boomer generation. Um, so I encountered uh, cannabis and other uh, entheogens back in the late 60s. Um, so my connection with that particular plant goes back to then, and I liked it from the get-go. Um, <clears throat> but um, the other entheogens, uh, at the time we called them psychedelics, of course, uh, and in particular LSD, uh, also pointed the way at the possibility of some of these substances uh, uh, for spiritual use. Um, and the long and the short of it is that I went through a variety of different uh, channels and paths, left all the psychedelics behind for a number of years, got involved with Tibetan Buddhism, and eventually found my way back, largely due, frankly, to Terence McKenna um, <clears throat> and an article that I re read by him or about him in the Los, uh, L.A. Weekly in 1988, I think it was, um, where there was this aha moment where he connected, reconnected me to this whole idea of the connection between spiritual work and uh, psychedelics. Uh, and I, that didn't directly immediately lead to look, linking that up to cannabis as a spiritual medicine. But again, one thing led to another. I got involved in organizing the conference up here and so on. And a few years ago, I was having a conversation with the wonderful Kathleen Harrison. Uh, it has started to occur to me that cannabis was being ignored as a spiritual medicine, uh, even while it was spreading rapidly in the culture. This was like four or five years ago. And I was telling this to Kathleen, and she, who, if you, people don't know who she is, and then if they do know who Terrence McKenna was, they were married together for 15 years, and 
So she was set right in the middle of this work for a long time. Anyway, um, she said, oh, I think if you put a book together like that, it would be really important and I would contribute to it. Well, I've seen some of her writing. She doesn't write books, but she writes some articles and she's a beautiful writer and she's a very knowledgeable, insightful human being. And I thought, oh, if she'll contribute to this, I'm going to go ahead with this project. And that was about four or five years ago. One thing led to another. I ended up with 17 contributors plus me and the wonderful Julie Holland as uh, writing the foreword. And um, timing was right, I guess, because Inner Traditions Park Street Press picked it up. Uh, I sent the I sent the proper you know book proposal to them on a Sunday evening, and on the Monday morning, the acquisitions editor wrote me back and said, "Right up our alley." <laughs> wow, what a genesis story! That's really yeah. perfect. Just flow together like that. Yeah, it feels like it because, quite honestly. I had inner traditions on my radar from the get-go. Um, I've probably got 15 of their, you know, titles on my bookshelf um, behind me here. And, uh, I, you know, I just really like the – they seem like the right size and the right kind of focus. And I, Jim Fadiman is kind of a semi-friend. He's a colleague, and a, I guess he's a friend, really. And he's got a book with them, and he was really happy with them. So I only sent – you know, I did the proper book proposal, like 40, 50 pages, right, including samples and stuff. And um, I only sent it to them. I never sent it to anybody else. So, yes, it just seemed like it was – I do really feel like, you know, I, I don't think this is boasting or anything. I just feel like uh, it, it was meant to be, you know, sort of like beyond me, you know, just like it was something that needed to be talked about. Absolutely. And you did really get a great place to channel all of these – incredible people from the community it's really a who's who of the great thinking on this stuff a lot of it yeah Yeah, a lot of them yeah uh were there any contributors that really surprised you to this book that you didn't see coming in the beginning hmm um gee uh i don't know to be honest um let me think about who's in there uh well you know i can't think of anyone in particular there was one fellow uh, not exactly that, but he, um, uh, well, actually, Julie Holland was a nice surprise. Um, uh, I'll come back to that other guy in a second. Uh, um, I had, uh, Julie has a book called The Pot Book. She's the editor of this book called The Pot Book, which is a compendium, many different approaches, uh, aspects of cannabis use, legal, medical, recreational, spiritual, etc. And there was an article in there by a guy named Jeremy Wolf that I thought was really interesting, really insightful, um, called Thoughts, Thoughts on Pot. And uh, you know him, don't you? Yeah. Um, you were at that Alchemist Kitchen event with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, he's brilliant in my opinion. And uh, I wrote him and asked him if he would contribute to the book. And he said yes right away. And at the time, I didn't know that he was uh, Julie's partner. And when I figured that out, or when I finally realized that, I, I uh, asked her or asked him if he would, if she might be interested in writing a foreword. And she she got on board right away. So that was really cool. Um, uh, the other guy I was going to mention was an interesting little story. Was Mariano da Silva. Um, uh, He's doing some very interesting work, and I, um, I, I, he has to remain essentially incognito with all this work. Um, and, and for that reason, he wasn't going to uh, contribute anything at first. Uh, met him personally um, and done ceremonies with him, ayahuasca ceremonies with him. Um, and he works with a community, and they've had issues. Uh, he's from Brazil. They've had issues down there with cannabis because cannabis is seriously illegal in Brazil, as I understand it. And um, he didn't want to do it because uh, they have been advocating for uh, ayahuasca ceremonial use, not just in Brazil, but in a variety of countries. And this cannabis issue had resulted in some problems for them down there because uh, the government can be pretty heavy handed about it. So it took several conversations with him and he finally agreed to do that. And he's re- he, I consider this fellow a really remarkable person. He's sort of what you might call an elder um, and I can't even d- say, you know, what organization or anything he works with um, uh, for this reasons that I just mentioned. But he kind of at first reluctantly agreed. And then he um, just had some really interesting insights about cannabis as a spiritual medicine. He's one or two of his my favorite quotes from the book are are by him or uh, thoughts, I guess you could say. And 
One is uh, he talks a lot about frequency of use, which is something we might discuss if you want to mm-hmm. at some point. Uh, but he said uh, something to the effect of uh, that he can that uh, cannabis, uh, uh, what he calls Santa Maria, uh, can can uh, open one up into transcendental realms. Um, and then uh, we talked about this was something I wanted to get into the book too, and it's one of the themes. I don't know if it's on your list or not, Lex, but of questions. But uh, the commingling of medicines. There's a chapter by another fellow mm-hmm. and him, both talking about how cannabis can support the use of other spiritual or spirit plant medicines. And he had this uh, Mariano had this wonderful little comment uh, in there where he said, "What when they do it within the context of an actual ayahuasca ceremony?" Um, they do it well into the ceremony after they've worked with the ayahuasca for quite a while, like after the second round of medicine. Then, the, And he only does this with private groups. He doesn't do this in any public situation because he has to know who the people are and how they can handle it because it actually uh, further empowers or strengthens the ayahuasca effect in a, in a really sort of unique way. And the way he described it in his uh, chapter in the book was he said, the ayahuasca takes you to the top of the mountain, and the Santa Maria gives you wings to fly in the wind. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's great. That's, isn't that a lovely little uh, statement? That, that, that's really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the other one that I liked from him that stuck with me, when he talked about mixing them, one of his answers was, the effect is like having the moon and the sun in the same sky. Oh, yeah, that's another one of my favorites. Yeah, really and that's, lovely. I would say the cannabis is the moon in that sense. Mm-hmm. And the, the ayahuasca is the sun. It kind of burns, and it's super powerful that way. Um, cannabis, just while we're on that topic, actually, and, and Francisco in his chapter also talks a little bit about like this, about this, that um, <clears throat> when you do the cannabis, oh, and by the way, Mariano says it's really important that when you do the cannabis, you know, later on in the ayahuasca ceremony like that, it's got to be done in, both external and internal silence um, to let it do its thing. You can't be in your head, and you can't have a bunch of things going on, no songs, no chat, nothing, um, just sitting in silence with it. And then when it has that effect of taking off from the top of the mountain. But Francisco also talks about how it has some other interesting effects where it can sometimes actually not diminish, but actually sort of smooth out the the sort of sharper or almost harsher ayahuasca energy um, if you do it later in the ceremony like that. Um, uh, and also they use it sometimes for reflection at the end. It tends to stimulate uh, the, uh, the, the the verbal centers when they're kind of doing um, a sharing session afterwards sometimes. Uh, so it can sort of soothe as well as strengthen the effects of other medicines. And, and as long as I'm talking about that, I just want to end up by saying that anyone who's listening to this, who's considering doing something like that, please be very careful. This, we're playing with powerful energies here, okay? That's good advice. And, and there's a lot of harm reduction to be done about cannabis, even in a moderate spiritual use. Absolutely. And how, what would, what are the cautions and obstacles and sidetracks and objectives that were most important to you to lay out in this? I think you meant objections, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's pretty much the title of a chapter I threw in near the end. Um, uh, let's see how much of I can remember. <laughs> uh, well, okay, so there's a few things, I guess. Thank you for asking. Uh, uh, so one of them is this frequency of use issue, and uh, I can't do it full justice in a short time because it's not a simple one way or the other. I, I know a bunch of people, and I'm sure you do as well, who uh, uh, skillfully use cannabis daily. And, and actually, before even going there, uh, medical use is another thing. Lots of people need it for medical purposes um, uh, on a daily basis, and you know, no one's going to question that. Certainly not me. Um, and then I know people, uh, mature, focused, disciplined, you know, fairly spiritually awake people, more or less, um, who use cannabis daily and use it effectively. But I think we both know that a lot of people also use it ineffectively. And it's, that's addressed here and there in the book as well. Steve Dyer in the chapter, uh, conversation with two medicine shamans, um, 
he said most people, he doesn't think most people actually know how to use cannabis properly, um, effectively, that it can actually, because it's, this is one of my kind of main themes, it's an amplifier. So it can amplify whatever's going on. So, you know, it really matters that you have intention, some skills, some discipline, some focus, and presumably some experience with how to channel that energy and how to use it uh, skillfully rather than it using you. So part of the thing with frequency of use is there's a couple things there, I suppose. One is that for some of the deeper spiritual work, I think most people understand, um, most cannabis users understand, that if you're doing it all the time, uh, it becomes there's a tolerance effect, and it's also a familiarity effect, but also it just sort of softens the the the, the sharper edges of of uh, some of the deeper spaces you can relax and open up into if you're doing it less frequently. Mariano again says five to seven days in between is good. Um, he only does it on like I guess he works a lot during the weekend with clients and or the week I mean with clients and so on, and on the weekend he says. He'll go out in the woods and do some special meditations. But he says, if I do it, these transcendental realms that I can access, if I do this every day, gone completely. So there's that part of it. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not necessarily not spiritual to use sort of lightish doses two or three times in the day and have yourself into a zone that makes, that works for you. And I know people like that. So that's in a sense spiritual, but for kind of deeper exploration in the way that you might, uh, you know, link it in with uh, other entheogens, for example, I think it's probably important to do it less frequently. Um, uh, I, I, I actually just had a really interesting confirmation of that in my own personal experience. I was away for two weeks recently um, down in Florida, and I couldn't find any place to find any cannabis. So I actually went for close to three weeks without having any at all. And my normal pattern is maybe twice a week, um, and at least one of those, I just sort of sit down in silence, do some meditating, maybe jot down some ideas, things like that. Um, and so I went for almost three weeks and then I had two puffs and some, you know, typically strong commercial uh, cannabis from our area. Uh, and uh, it was psychedelic, uh, you know, with my eyes closed and in the, in the darkened room, I was seeing um, moving patterns that reminded me of ayahuasca visions. Um, wow. I attribute that to the fact that I took, you know, three weeks off. So for deeper work, there's that. And then there's this other issue. Okay, so there's the sharpness versus dullness continuum thing going on there. And then there's this other issue, which we, most of us are very familiar with as well, which is, it's such a, when you, when it, when it works well for you, it's such a beautiful plant. It's such a, an exquisite space that you can enter into it that, you know, it's very normal to want to repeat something that, that is really enjoyable, obviously, right? Like anything, you know, whatever it is, sex, <laughs> chocolate, um, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but the problem is, again, the more you do it, in a sense, there's a diminishing returns thing. So that's one part of that. And the other part is that you can become very dependent on it. Um, uh, I don't really like to use the word addiction, although I'm not completely against it, but I would say it's a psychological addiction. Uh, uh, I think it's pretty much agree that it's not a, it's not an intense, uh, physiological addiction issue. Um, but the psychological addiction or dependence can be intense for a lot of people. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we get thinking, well, you can't do anything without it or whatever, you know. Um, but there's, again, it's sort of like she's, you know, if you think of her as a, as a, as your guru or as your, uh, as your, you know, guide, your Pachamama, Mother Mary, whatever you want to, language you want to put it, I like to think of her as a she, as Kathleen Harrison does. Uh, she's kind of like she's sort of slapping you around a little if, you, if you're, if you're you know, too sloppy and too demanding, uh, too seduced by your desire, continual desire for her. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a really great image, in fact. And it, it speaks to something that the activists and the stoners can be really uh, 
arrogant about, which is these these negative downsides around cannabis. Yes, it's non-toxic. You can't overdose on it. But the science is clear that there is a slight physical addiction to this. And there can be a really strong mental addiction. I think the best example is the first couple chapters of Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. It's a person completely addicted to cannabis. And just like you can get addicted to sex or stealing or any of this other behavioral stuff to the point that it is incredibly detrimental to your life, that can absolutely happen with weed. And the problem is people are always like, well, it's just weed. And they stop and think about that this is a really psychoactive plant that can uh, really get ingrained into your life without with it sneaking up on you because it's just weed. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, if you're using it all the time, and especially if you're not really sort of, as Terence McKenna used to say about the other antigens, sitting down, shutting up and paying attention, uh, you know, I, you know, like, it's really, it's really obvious to me. If I'm doing something, like if I'm reading something, or uh, even if I'm playing music, or uh, if, uh, if I was, if I stop doing that, and just sit in silence. The, the the power of the plant is much stronger. Like you notice it way more. And and I think this is really important for spiritual work with cannabis. Actually, is you know I I talk about it a few times, and I think other people in the uh, in the book also do. Uh, is that you know at least for part of the time you spend with her, if you're wanting to use cannabis as a spiritual ally. You have to sit down, shut up, and pay attention. You have to get out of your own head um, and allow yourself to surrender to absolutely total, full attention to her. Um, uh, you know, I sometimes think of the metaphor of making love. You know, if you're thinking about what you're going to do later or just in your head in any way uh, while you're making love with someone, you're not fully there for them. You're not fully responsive with them. Um, and uh, the medicine is like that in a sense too. It, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's very clear and it's very powerful uh, when you are paying full attention to it. And you might not even realize how powerful your medicine, your cannabis medicine, can be if you have never really done that. You know, um, it's easy to spill that energy off with cannabis. That's one thing that's really different about cannabis than the other so-called major antiagents. Is you take a sizable dose of ayahuasca except in a few situations where it sometimes doesn't actually do anything, you know, basically you're in, you know, they grabbed you by the scruff of the neck and thrust you into the vehicle and you're gone. Uh, cannabis, you can, unless it's super, super strong dosage, uh, you can generally um, just slough off that energy and not even really realize what a powerful, beautiful, clear medicine this is. So, so sit down shutting up and paying attention is, is essential. That's that's great advice. It, yeah. it actually reminds me of a great old character I met, and he had started a cannabis church, and the idea was only two puffs and only on Sunday morning at 5 o'clock. And they oh. had done this for 1,000 Sundays. In a, or, sorry, yeah, 1,000 Sundays. Who, um, who is this, or can you say? Uh, I, I shouldn't say, but uh, that was his idea. Oh. Uh, and actually, someone at the same spot told me that their practice was smoking a little bit of a joint and then going for a long walk. And that was the only way they'd allow themselves to do it so they could really sit with that energy and grok it like what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, she really resonates with nature. Um, no, the reason I asked who that might be is because uh, I've got a chapter in a book that's supposedly coming out around now um, by a guy um, named Bernard von Nothaus. Um He's the editor, and he's collected a bunch of people um, and his book is called One Toke to God. And uh, he told me the story of how he hadn't used cannabis for a num number of years, but somebody had given him, a joint, given him a joint. And normally he was busy on the weekends with family, but they'd all gone away that weekend. So he lay down his bed on, on his bed on a Sunday morning and had one toke. And he claims that he had this really powerful devotional spiritual experience. Um, and so he started doing that every Sunday for years after that, just one toke on his own in the morning, um, which is actually a good point. Um, uh, I think I address it briefly in the book. Uh, it, uh, it also can make a big difference if you're well rested um, when you when you when you do use cannabis for spiritual purposes, because it has this sort of even though it can be extremely powerful, there's a kind of a refined sharpness about it that if you're tired, you can more go into more toward the tired 
sort of feeling or it can make you dozy or sleepy or whatever. You need good energy for working with cannabis, I think. That That's really good practical advice. It's going to bring out what's going on there. Yeah. and uh, You know what? Can I just say one more thing about the mm-hmm. um, the caution aspect of it? Because Kathleen Harrison has about a page and a half in her chapter, uh, Who Is She?, uh, where she really addresses that in a really clear way, and I was very impressed with that. And she talks about how especially young men that she knows have a tendency to get really seduced into what this kind of comfort zone of using cannabis all the time. And she said they become wedded to it, and I, I think the word wedded is an important word to use in that regard, Like because she says that even more than they be, they become wedded to their cannabis practice, uh, practice isn't really, uh, it's too uplifted a word for that, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, their cannabis use patterns more than to their relationships to the external world. Um, and uh, as I think she put it, something like they don't want to come out of this sort of seeming safety zone that they've created for themselves into the what she called the daylight world of, of, of relationship and responsibility. Um, so yes, absolutely. Cannabis can be misused. I just actually one more thought on that. One of the people I wanted to try to get to write for the book and he almost did. And then he sort of disappeared on me, um, uh, is a fellow named Baba Rampuri who has a book with inner traditions actually called the autobiography of a sadhu, not to be confused with Paramahansa Yogananda's book, autobiography of a yogi. Um, anyway, uh, he was involved is, has long been involved with a group of uh, the, the, the Nagababas, the naked sadhus in India that use uh, ganja. And I wrote him, and he's originally from the States, but he's been in India for like 40 years now. And he's the guru of this group now. And uh, I wrote him, asked him if he would contribute to the book. And his first reply was, no, <laughs> because you people, <laughs> you people in the West don't know how to use this plant. Um, <laughs> And I wrote him back and I said, well, that's exactly why I'm wanting to do this book, because I want people like you to help straighten us out, because it's not going away anytime soon. So he wrote back and he said, okay, as long as I can have the time for it. But then somehow I wrote him again and he never replied and I don't know what happened to him. But just I wanted to say that because here's this fellow who's been working with a group for 40 years that uses cannabis as part of their practice. And he didn't think Westerners even deserved to you know, to be, you know, talking about it really, because they just didn't get it. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And it speaks to one of the things I think is the most helpful from your book that I really appreciated was you laying out ways of creating your own rituals here in the West. Because for a lot of us, we don't even have the idea of how we would go about making a, a personal church to this plant. And then you give us these open source adaptable templates that we can use for creating ritual. And I think it's really a helpful thing. How did you come up with these? Uh, by, by practice, actually. Uh, and I just want to, as a sort of disclaimer, say right off the bat that uh, <clears throat> I like the term for cannabis, the people's plant. Actually, it, it, I, I kind of twisted a term that, that Jeremy Wolf uh, had, which was the people's psychedelic. Um, so I just ended up start, you know, calling it the, um, the people's plant. And what I mean by that is it's a very flexible, gracious, kind ally. And if you can make use of it spiritually with some skill, some experience, some intention, etc., uh, there's lots of different ways that you can create ceremonies. Um, I would say more, much more flexible than other entheogens. I've worked with a number of these en- other entheogens extensively. Psychedelics, again, for anyone who doesn't know the word entheogens, um, like ayahuasca, psilocybin mushrooms, peyote, plants like that in formal ways. Like I, for 12 years, was involved with the Native American church, um, uh, using peyote ceremony, uh, doing peyote ceremonies. And they create an amazing container for this kind of work. Uh, very powerful, effective container for this kind of work, as do a number of the ayahuasca people or, you know, pathways. Uh, so cannabis is very flexible that way. And we're also at this time where we don't have examples around us very much. So I wanted to add a little bit in there. And let people know that, you know, if you have experience with other kinds of ritual formats, structures, uh, bring those in and start pr- experimenting. That's a be- one of the beauties of cannabis is it's very flexible that way. You're not going to create harm, particularly uh, by experimenting with different ways to do ceremonies alone or 
in a group environment. The one caution in that regard is, you know, watch out for the dosage. I talk about that a little bit in the book, especially with sensitive people or inexperienced people, and even more especially with oral and orally ingested cannabis, because anyone who's experienced it knows that can get very weird and disconcerting, and you can even end up in the hospital freaked out, um, as they do. My my family doctor does not like cannabis because his only contact with it is people who come to him uh, claiming they've had an overdose of cannabis. Um, so that comes back uh, to you know how do you how do you use it effectively? So I'd say dosage is important for starters. Start small, especially if you're inexperienced. Again, um, all bets are off if you've already been using it daily because it's going to diminish the effect overall. And dosage is less of an issue or you might have to do more. One more reason to give a break in between times if you're trying to use it spiritually. Um, <clears throat> strains can make a difference. Uh, and that's a large, you know, not definitively nailed down uh, question either. But for people who are not really thinking about it, the sativa end of the continuum tends to be more energizing, uplifting, potentially more thought provoking, etc. Um, and the indica end of the continuum tends to be uh, more body-oriented, body stone, often drowsy-inducing, couch lock. Doctors prescribe indica oftentimes for sleep, uh, as a sleep aid, etc. So um, people have to experiment with that too. A number of us lean or prefer strains that lean a little bit toward the sativa end because of the sort of sharper upper energy to that. But the trade-off there is that it can be a little more challenging to get out of your head with those um, strains. But basically, people have to experiment for themselves on that. Find strains that work for themselves and maybe keep going with them. I would say the key to the whole thing overall, um, not trying to be too reductive about exactly what you do with this, but the key in my understanding, such as it is, to um, open the door of cannabis's strongest potential as a spiritual medicine or a spiritual ally is the ability to get out of your head, uh, to create mm. a situation where you're not going to get to be out of your head all the time. I mean, you know, just sit down and meditate for half an hour. How many of just, just straight, I mean, you know, like no, no, no cannabis, sit down on a cushion, meditate. How much of that half an hour are you going to be just sitting in silence, gently paying attention to your breath, perhaps, um, and how much of that time are you actually going to be in your head? Well, I think most of us are going to be in our heads for at least part of the time. And cannabis has this sort of extra thing that it does because it stimulates thought for a lot of people. So it um, that becomes really interesting, really tricky, because it that can be both a positive and a sort of a negative in the sense that, of course, you can use cannabis for creative stimulation and so on. But those ideas, you know, that amplifying factor makes those ideas look pretty shiny oftentimes, and you can get really seduced into them and not realize that what you're actually doing is you're doing the same thing that the Buddhist and other traditions talk about as the obstacle to awakening. You're filling your mind with thought. That, that the discursive thinking mind is considered to be the, the, the way that we build a cloudy veil around us between us and unconditioned reality. Um, so it becomes tricky if you're going, oh, this is the most interesting thought I've ever had. I must entertain this thought and go with it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that can be really useful sometimes if you're doing it in a directive way, directed way. But when you're trying to find out what cannabis can do in terms of actually changing you, actually waking you up over a period of time, which is another issue we could talk about, but it's not a quick fix. It's not meant to be a quick fix. Um, and it's not meant to be about the high in that moment necessarily either. It's gradually understanding that there's a way to be in the world which is um, very connected to the earth, to our bodies, and to the world around us, and a lot less in our heads than most Westerners tend to be. Most indigenous people will say, oh, my God, you European people, you're in your heads way too much, you know. Um, so, so being able to enter into some um, some amount of degree of time that you spend with cannabis, even if it's just coming and going, even if it's just recognizing, ah, there, I was just, this is what you do in basic meditation practice anyway. You, you don't judge the fact that you're thinking or the content of your thinking. Um, you just 
notice at some point, oh, yes, I've just been fantasizing about this woman I'd like to date or what I'm going to have to say to my boss tomorrow or what I did yesterday or whatever. Um, and then when you recognize that, just gently kind of acknowledge that and come back to just being present in the space, perhaps using the breath as an anchor to come back, um, gently attending to the breath as because it's just a natural thing that you don't have to control, obviously, right? So use that as an anchor to come back. But at least work with that idea so that you don't have to, my experience anyways, you don't have to be spending all it, you know, even if the thoughts are coming fairly often and you're having to do that a lot, the even short amounts of time that you can spend in some kind of silence, like inner silence, where the thoughts are just quiet, gone, um, can, because of the amplifying energy of cannabis, the amplifying potential can really open up some beautiful, deeper spaces, some, can open up the heart, can enter you into a state of peace, ideally, ultimately, it can do that. Um, and, and in fact, you know, in stronger doses, you know, almost all bets are off. You know, Terrence McKenna himself said, in the right kind of circumstances, it's almost right up there with uh, the major antheogens. But again, that that's really important to pay attention to because, you know, I think what I said in the book at one point is the one way of thinking about the optimal dosage is how much you can and want to handle in any given session. But the can part is really important there because if you're having physical symptoms, dizzy, dizziness, nausea, anything like that, or getting scared or paranoid or um, any any kind of physical or emotional and mental discomfort, then you've either done too much or you need to learn how to work with that energy. Um, and that's actually a key as well. Uh, I would say, as I think I said in the book, just because you're having some uh, disconcerting experiences doesn't mean that you doesn't necessarily mean you've done too much. It just means that you're not effectively working with the amplified energy in that moment. But there are ways you can learn to do that. So again, I would suggest with people that are trying to explore these territories is to start with smaller dosages, see if you can sit with it. Um, and then if you want to try to keep going deeper, just gradually up the dosage, you know, and see where that goes. If you can stay present, calm, you can go into some deep spaces. Just don't try to drive an airplane. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's great. It must be really interesting to watch these Westerners change their perspective and put cannabis in this new category or try to figure out how for themselves to put it into the spiritual spot with, we always reserve for mushrooms and LSD and ayahuasca and such. Yeah, well, then the thing is, you know, really what it really comes down to is that you know, I, I was involved with Tibetan Buddhism for quite a while, so I like Buddhist language. And basically, what Buddhist teachings say is that your natural state of being, once all the confusion and all the obstacles are relaxed and let go of and seen through, etc., is uh, what they call the awakened state. Um, and you can't really explain it too well, and you can't really say what it is until you've at least had a glimpse of it. Um, but that's what this work is all about, whether it's cannabis or any of these other antigens. Um, they're, they're allies and they're tools when they're used effectively, but they're not the moon. They're fingers pointing at the moon, as it were, you know. Um, you know what I'm saying? So, the, so, so what, what the culture really needs to understand is that we are all Buddha already, right? That we're already, that we are, um, we all have this unforced, natural, unconditioned or unconditional um, uh, awakened quality, which is not a position of any kind. It's not a dogma. It's not a philosoph philosophical stance. It's a reality that many people in the course of human history have understood in their own experience. Um, and uh, But most people, almost all of us, either have never experienced it or, or in the glimpses of moments that we have haven't recognized what it is. For example, um, I think a lot of people have probably had Japanese call it satori, like a sudden experience, a sudden enlightenment experience. Um, uh, Japanese Zen people, I mean. Um, uh, uh, I think a lot of people have probably had a satori experience in lovemaking, where um, you know the, it's been so powerful with your partner, and the climax is so powerful that for a, at least a brief period of time, you're in this kind of altered state, you know. Um, uh, so 
some people, lots of people maybe had the experience of a glimpse of enlightenment, but basically uh, until you've actually sort of recognized that there's no time and that there's a potential of being in a place of total peace that is unarguable, um, which is also extremely heart connected, uh, then, um, you know, you haven't quite understood what we're capable of. And I think that's what we need to understand in this culture. And that's actually what will turn this trajectory of where we're, where we are and where we're going around as well. That's beautiful. That, and it, and it makes me want to ask you with your Buddhist background. I know Chris Bennett, who wrote an essay on the history in your book and has a great big book, uh, on cannabis, uh, cannabis and the Soma solution. He makes some, ideas that perhaps the Buddha himself was exposed to ganja as a prince of Sakya. Do you have any opinion on that one way or the other? Well, I don't think my opinion would matter because it's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of whether it happened or not. Um, but I could say something about it. First of all, yeah, there's a story, you know, you know, who knows? I mean, we're, we can't even get straight news out of the White House from yesterday. Uh, are we able to get <laughs> accurate uh, news from uh, 2,500 years ago in India? I'm not quite sure about that, um, but the story supposedly is that uh, the Buddha uh, existed on one hemp seed a day for six years. Well, that could have been sort of apocryphal, or maybe he was actually eating more hemp, and maybe that was the source of some of the visions that he supposedly experienced during that time. Uh, so there's no way of proving that. There's no way of knowing, and I'm I, I, I'm not on board with uh, a lot of wild speculation about those sort of things anyway, sort of beside the point, I think. However, True. there is maybe one aspect of this which is important. Because of the misunderstanding, repression, suppression, denigration, etc., of entheogenic medicines, is that they have been here for a long time, and most cultures have found them because there are plants growing around them. And almost every, you know, before we had... Uh, um, you know, giant grocery stores where you can go down two blocks and get your food. Uh, every, pretty much every community on the planet had to know all the plants in their neighborhood. And soon enough, they were going to find out whether it was going to kill them, whether it was going to be medicine, whether it was going to be food, whether they could use it to build their houses or whether they could use it to see God, you know. Um, so it seems to me, and and then we didn't have that sort of like, the, you know, the acceptance of, of, of psychedelics, so to speak, um, has come and gone in different cultures at different times. But I'm pretty sure in India 2,500 years ago, we probably didn't have the same kind of update, uh, you know, uh, restrictions in that regard. And so whatever plants were around, I would think they used them. I think it seems obvious. Uh, what what happens with, you know, the recording of history, as most of us know, is it, that's people writing history and a lot of times they're revising, you know, things and deleting things as they go. Oh, I don't want that in there, you know. What? People using medicines to achieve enlightenment? No, 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 no. It has to go through the church hierarchy. Um, so uh, we have no idea what people in the past have done with, with uh, psychedelic or entheogenic medicines. So I, I think in terms of your question that there's a very good chance the, the Buddha may have been using um cannabis and any uh, a number of other uh, you know there may have been mushrooms around that area um you know the, who knows i know who knows i just want to get the kinks worked out of the time travel machine to find yeah. out yeah that'd be, that'd be one of the first questions you know there was a guy named giorgio samarini he's a scholar from spain he traveled through uh north africa and found um uh uh, the ruins of Byzantine, is it Byzantine or Byzantine era churches, which is, we're talking maybe two, three hundred years, uh, into the Christian era. Um, and he had photographs at a conference that I went to of these things. And he wasn't one of these sort of like rabid people trying to say, yes, absolutely, it's like this. He was just saying, look at these and decide for yourself. And the mosaics on the church walls that were still standing, they had the world, they, most of them, or many of them, had the world tree created out of mosaic tiles, different colors. And um, uh, they had a very obvious mushroom on the end of the branches of these trees. Um, so, you know, to me, that's just one of, you know, many examples. Are you familiar with um, 
uh, Eleusis, the, the ceremony at Eleusis. Yes. Yeah, yes. Well, a lot of people aren't. And just super briefly, I believe it went on annually for over a thousand years. And uh, as I understand it anyway, from the little I've read about it, uh, pretty much all the influence leaders of Athens, the intellectuals, the philosophers, the Plato's, the Socrates, the Aristotle's, and all these people, all went there for an initiation. Uh, and uh, there's not much doubt, I don't think, that they don't know what it was exactly, but there was a powerful sacramental uh, uh, spiritual medicine involved in this. Um, you know, so here's a thousand years, over a thousand years of an annual ritual in what was arguably the sort of leading cultural center, at least of the Western world at the time, and and created the foundations for Western philosophy. So from that point of view, you could say, I don't want to go too far in this direction, but you could say that uh, um, that our current sort of philosophical understandings um, are sourced uh, um, in the West, the Western versions of them are sourced from ancient Athens, and those were influenced by um, psychedelic experience. Um, that's just one of many, many, many examples. It's true, and we just want to ignore that all of these thought leaders, like Plato, it was understood you went and had one good trip at least in your life. Yeah. Yes. And, exactly. Yeah. And one and it, and we'll never know exactly what they were drinking there. Just like soma, you're, it's impossible to truly know. But one of the big guesses that seems to make sense is that it was some version of the ergot fungus yeah. that we got LSD from, uh -huh. and that was also the source of of Saint Vidius's dancing. I think was the term when entire French towns would go nuts for a couple of days throughout the Middle Ages. It's because they were eating this fungus that was actually had some version of LSD in it, but they were getting the bad version and somehow the Greeks figured out a way to keep a brew going of some kind that would allow them to talk to the gods. Uh-huh, indeed. Yeah, no, I think I think here's here's what I think, you know, of all this discussion we're having right about this, uh, right now about this, is the most important thing to sort of put it in a nutshell. Um, humanity, communities all over the planet for as long as they've been such, uh, have uh, have found plants in their neighborhood that could uh, take us out of the quotidian, out of the status quo conventional state of mind, and open us up to our connection with the spirit. There's no doubt about that in my mind. And um, and so cannabis, you know, since this is what we're ostensibly talking about today, uh, cannabis has a role to play in this for the time to come and that's what the book's for um is to help you know provide some you know offer some suggestions again open source flexible you know kind of idea um that as long as you take an attitude of respect and you you know understand what's we're capable of and work toward it uh sincerely without taking advantage of people you know, etc. Hopefully, without overly commoditizing this and declaring yourself some great guru and charging a fortune to come to your ceremonies, um, it's the people's plant. I'd like to see it be more in an indigenous way of the sharing economy than some sort of capitalist model of how we proceed with this. But it has immense potential, and and also cannabis. Although, again, it's potentially a lot milder than some of the other entheogens when when you when you really know how to work with it and you really prepared to go deep with it it can be pretty much as powerful as some of these other substances uh there's a book uh called orgies of the hemp eaters which is a wonderful book by the way um by uh yeah. zug and um bay hakim bay Abel Zug and Hakim Bey. It did loads of great stories. But there's a chapter in there by Michael Aldrich about the Maha Nirvana Tantra practice of, I think, 1100s or 11th century, maybe, India. Um, and to me, this was, uh, this is an example of the kind of aspiration we could have for cannabis spiritual use. That they took it really seriously in a way that people in our culture are generally not prepared to do. But I, I don't, I would like, I would love to see us move more toward this kind of attitude. 
they would take a yogi and a yogini, male and a female, um, presumably experienced with meditation and you know knowing how to work with their minds, uh, so they're able to open. They're not going to get freaked out or you know as their egos are threatened or whatever. And then they would um, uh, put them through a preparatory period. Perhaps I don't remember all the details, so you know go read the article if you want to be exact about this. But um, you know, vaguely, what I remember is you know maybe a couple of weeks or even longer where they're um, uh, fasting, meditating more than they would normally, so that they're body systems and mind systems are prepared for this particular encounter which takes place in the temple um, and the monks are all around supporting this and everything and then the couple the yogi and the yogini are brought together physically um, and you know uh, they unite physically you know like penis and vagina kind of unite but it's not for the purposes of you know having a great role in the hay it's to for a uh, direct experience of divine of the divine, um, and then they drink something. So again, the, you know, oral ingested cannabis can be a lot more powerful. So their system, their whole system, mentally, physically, is extremely well prepared for this. They've got support and guidance around them. They come together and they surrender. They they dissolve into into the godhood, as it were. Um, that's an actual practice, right? And there's wow. no reason why we can't be doing those kind of things now. Oh heavens! Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's and it's and it also it. I like I like how you often compare this to the the act of sex as well. And it's something it reminds me of something Terence said about in much of tantra. It was just like you said. It's not about uh, even knowing the person that you're doing this with. It's not. It's not about that. It's about working with that person to achieve a spiritual godhood type state. Absolutely, yeah. Something easy to forget. Oh, of course, yeah. Wow. Yeah, to see those rituals spread in this Western world would be incredible. I'm glad to see you're out there trying to, to uh, plant the seeds. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, and the last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, one of your last essays was about the, the use of cannabis and creativity. Which is which is a great one. You have so many great quotes in there by different creative people as well. But speaking that modern idea that art can be somebody's spiritual experience and and their church as well, and to remember to use cannabis like this. You said something. The Beatles said something like, "Create with it, don't play with it." Well, that was a direct quote from Ringo Starr. He said that if we, I think he wasn't just talking about cannabis. I don't think, but I think he was including cannabis in it. He says, "Yeah, we found out really early on that." Uh, if we uh, tried to perform, you know, derelict was his word in any way. It was shitty music. So we would have the experiences and bring that understanding into the music and the creation and performance of the music later. Um, which isn't to say that you can't perform music on cannabis uh, or any or, or any other art form. Um, uh, it, it just uh, it's hard to say, really. You know, I I um, I quoted. Uh, um, a few uh, guidelines by a fellow who was going by the handle Herb Garden in there um, about uh, he, he he says he's a uh, composer of classical music that's been performed by major orchestras in the United States and he said things that work and don't work with uh, uh, with cannabis and he listed off a few things I can't remember them all but he said you know some of the more technical things no leave it alone um, sight reading doesn't work too well usually. Um, improvisations of less than two minutes do and of course the idea stage so that's really an interesting one um, I actually saw I don't know if you heard of this guy I just saw him on Twitter the other day and watched his video his name's Matthew Santoro he's one of these guys that does little um, YouTube videos and um, it was like the 10 myths about cannabis and most of them were right on the, on the mark, but one of them, one of them, what he said was a myth, was that um, cannabis is a creative aid, and uh, he and he quoted some study that showed that it, it it didn't help or whatever, you know, and then in fact it could be the opposite. And I I actually wrote him about that because I I took complete issue with that point. Um, uh, it's 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 a skill we're talking about. And there can be some, you know, missteps and wrong directions. Um, but again, I like to think of it uh, in terms of this amplification function that, uh, you know, basically uh, 
I'm sort of a, kind of like, what would it call it? I'm kind of like an amateur artist, I suppose. You know, I, I compose music and I'm really into photography. Um, so I have some understanding of the, of the space that you get into when you're creating something. And essentially, the way I understand it anyway, I'm sure there are a lot of, you know, powerful artists out there that might have a better way of explaining it than this. But my way of talking about it is that you enter into the you create something in your mind in a sense and you enter into it like writers often novel writers often do this they um they uh they there's maybe start with a character and then they enter into that character and then the character they say this i've listened to a lot of interviews with writers and they often say this the character starts to take on a life of its own so you actually are you've actually created this kind of reality a virtual reality or inner reality somehow and then you step into it um, and that can apply to a variety of art uh, forms. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so uh, what cannabis does is, is, is it energizes and it amplifies. And this comes back again to where you channel it and your intention and how you're using it so that you're the one making skillful use of it rather than it becoming a dependent thing or whatever, like we were talking about earlier. Um, and so you enter into this space and it can open up the space more sharply, more deeply for people. Uh, and so I think where this fellow Matthew Santoro was uh, um, talking about the illusion is that uh, I think what he really meant was that uh, people think they've come upon the greatest idea that ever existed. And then when they check it the next day in the cold light of day, uh, it seems flat and empty or nonsensical or silly or superficial or whatever, right? But um, my my view of that is this partly an issue of experience and it's a partly an issue of not getting uh, overexcited about every single idea that comes up and, and in fact examining them later. But my experience is that I get loads of ideas that I find later on in the light of day to be valuable. Not all of them, and sometimes I do get overexcited about them in the moment, or at least I think they're more important than they are in that moment. But it all comes out in the wash later. Um, it opens things up. Uh, I know uh, one excellent award-winning journalist and uh, writer of two very successful books from major publishers who writes high all the time. Um, and I asked, wow. him, I asked him, how does that work for you? And he says, well, it's a vasodilator and my brain just fires better. But, you know, this we're talking about a person. We're not talking about a person who's getting blasted here. We're talking about a person who's, you know, using it, um, you know, in when he's probably when he's writing, he's writing every day. So he's using it every day. So the effects are going to be somewhat muted anyway. And he's used to it. So it's a familiar space. Um, and so it's a lighter dosage as well. Uh, I quoted Neil Young in the book, um, uh, who wrote many, perhaps most of his fantastic songs um, uh, under the influence of cannabis. And in his own autobiography, he's, he, talk, he was talking about this one particularly strong strain he was using at a time, uh, at one time. And he said, uh, he said, if you smoked a little, you wrote a song. If you smoked too much, you were just toast. Um, so dosage. Yeah is important there. But given that, I think because of its amplification uh, capability uh, with some skills, some experience, some, you know, discipline, uh, cannabis can be extremely valuable for creating lateral thinking, opening up new channels of ideas that you hadn't considered before, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's the, you were referring to some quotes at the beginning of my little chapter on cannabis and creativity. And one of them was by Terrence McKenna, who said, Something like the, what I value about cannabis is the way that it uh, it brings up unexpected ideas. Yeah, and it actually reminds me, I, his talk on creativity, he said something, it was a very challenging thing about art and how you should approach it with dread. And your job is to go out there and get the biggest fish you can pull up from the ocean. Not a worthless little guppy and not a giant whale that's going to eat you up but the biggest one you can handle yeah. and to use these kind of tools to, to help with that. Yeah. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about the spiritual and creative possibilities here and to get us thinking in new directions with this stuff. It's really, it's, it's wonderful work. 
and it's a and it's a great collection of essays in all these different directions, including history and, and best practices, cannabis and spirituality, and explorer's guide to an ancient plant spirit ally. Ah, Stephen Gray, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you for your interest in this. I, I really enjoyed talking with you, and I love talking about this. I think it's great stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support us on Patreon. Unlike other crowdfunding platforms, Patreon allows you to pledge any amount you'd like per month. To say thanks, we have perks like Flutter Art, Hemp T-Shirts, Palo Santo, and some of the new chapters from my graphic novel series about marijuana that's based on Moby Dick and that we're calling Anandamai, or The Cannabinoid. Find out more at patreon.com slash symposia. Thanks to Matt Payne, who engineered the sound, to Joey Whip and California Smile, who made the music, and to Brian Norman, who produced the show.